We're continuing our series in the book of Joshua. We have just a few chapters left before we finish, and then I'll be heading into the Gospel of John. But if you would, turn to Joshua 22. That's going to be the chapter we're covering this morning, and let's begin by reading it together. It is a bit lengthy, so please bear with me. Joshua 22, verse 1. At that time, Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh and said to them, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, and have obeyed my voice in all that I have commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days down to this day, but have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he promised them. Therefore, turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them. And sent them away, and they went to their tents. Now to the one half of the tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given a possession in Bashan, but to the other half, Joshua had given a possession beside their brothers in the land west of Jordan. And when Joshua sent them away to their homes and blessed them, he said to them, Go back to your tents with much wealth and with very much livestock, with silver, gold, bronze, and iron, and with much clothing. Divide the spoil of your enemies with your brothers." So the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh returned home, parting from the people of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go to the land of Gilead, their own land, of which they had possessed themselves by command of the Lord through Moses. And when they came to the region of the Jordan that is in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. And the people of Israel heard it said, Behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. Then the people of Israel sent to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh and the land of Gilead, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, and with him ten chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel, every one of them the head of a family among the clans of Israel. And they came to the people of Reuben, the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh and the land of Gilead, and they said to them, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord. What is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? Have we not had enough of the sin at Peor from which even yet we have not been cleansed, not cleansed ourselves and for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord that you too must turn away this day from following the Lord? And if you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. 
But now, if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land, where the Lord's tabernacle stands, and take for yourselves a possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord, or make us as rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, break faith in the matter of the devoted things, and wrath fell upon all the congregation of Israel? And he did not perish alone for his iniquity. Then the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh said in answer to the heads of the families of Israel, The Mighty One, God, the Lord, the Mighty One, God, the Lord, He knows, and let Israel itself know. If it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from the Lord from following the Lord, or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. No, but we did it from fear that in time to come, your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, you people of Reuben and people of Gad. You have no portion in the Lord. So your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. Therefore we said, let us now build an altar, not for burnt offering, nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you and between our generations after us, that we do perform the service of the Lord in his presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings. So your children will not say to our children in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. And we thought... If this should be said to us or to our descendants in time to come, we should say, Behold, the copy of the altar of the Lord which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for a burnt offering, grain offering, or sacrifice other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before his tabernacle. When Phinehas the priest and the chiefs of the congregation, the heads of the families of Israel who were with him, heard the words that the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh spoke, it was good in their eyes. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, said to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is in our midst because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. Then Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, and the chiefs returned from the people of Reuben and from the people of Gat in the land of Gilead to the land of Canaan to the people of Israel and brought back word to them. And the report was good in the eyes of the people of Israel. And the people of Israel blessed God and spoke no more of making war against them to destroy the land where the people of Reuben and the people of Gad were settled. The people of Reuben and the people of Gad called the altar witness. For, they said, it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. Amen. That's the reading of God's word. In 1998, James Birchall wrote a book called The Dying of the Light, in which he analyzed the way that so many historically Christian colleges and seminaries had, over time, departed from the convictions they were founded on, and eventually became largely secular institutions. After walking through numerous case studies in the book, Birchall identified sort of a common pattern that they all shared. 
They each began with very specific doctrinal and moral commitments, which were neglected over time in favor of a more pragmatic approach. Gradually, the schools became allergic to the type of narrow convictions they were founded upon and adopted a more inclusive attitude toward the religious beliefs of their faculty and students. And in the end, almost every one of these institutions ended up rejecting their religious heritage altogether in favor of a secular rationalism that was actually hostile to Christianity. Now, of course, these kinds of sad departures, at least from our perspective, from Christianity, they're not limited to Christian colleges and seminaries. Uh, We've watched the same pattern unfold in almost every kind of Christian institution, whether that be individual local churches, whole denominations, parachurch ministries, and other kinds of Christian organizations like relief agencies and publishers and businesses, etc., The kind of zeal and conviction that was required to establish these institutions is not put into maintaining faithfulness over time. Convictional leaders tire of the tedium of running an institution, and so they hand the reins over to more pragmatic administrators. And that's when the light begins to die. Now, this danger of sliding into spiritual unfaithfulness to the Lord over time. It's actually the central concern for Israel in Joshua 22. The Lord had established the nation of Israel as his old covenant people through Moses. And now the book of Joshua tells us how he gave them the land of Canaan as an inheritance in Joshua 1 through 5, he, he brought them into the land. Chapters 6 through 12, he enabled them to conquer the land. Chapters 13 through 21, he divided up the land between the 12 tribes. And now the nation has been established. The last three chapters of the book, Joshua 22 through 24, are all about how Israel was to live now in the land as God's old covenant people going forward. And these three chapters really share one main concern. Just to backtrack a second, in Deuteronomy 28, the Lord made it very clear to Israel, if they obeyed his commands, they would experience his blessings in the land. But if they went astray, were unfaithful to his commands, they would experience his curses in the land until he finally removed them from it altogether. Now, when that piece is in place, then you realize the primary way or the primary concern of these last three chapters of the book of Joshua is that the Israelites remain faithful to the Lord by keeping his commands so that they might be able to hold on to this land of Canaan, which God had given to them. Now, the primary way that this concern is revealed in these last three chapters of Joshua is through their leader, through Joshua himself. So these last three chapters each contain a speech of Joshua that he gave to Israel before he dies at the end of the book. And each of the speeches is concerned with this theme, that they stay faithful to the Lord in the land that that God had given to them. Now, the first of these three speeches 
is here in chapter 22. It's shorter than the others, and it's actually followed by a lengthy story, a story which illustrated, in some ways, as we'll see, the concern articulated in the speech. So let's take some time now to walk through this chapter together to get a better feel for what's in it. And let me just start here with a backstory. As that 40-year wilderness wandering period drew to a close, Moses began leading the nation of Israel, you remember, to the plains of Moab, where they would camp just across from the promised land. And in order to get to the plains of Moab, they had to pass through the vast territory of two Amorite kings named Sihon and Og. Now Moses offered these kings to just pass through their territory in peace, but they refused and they attacked Israel. And so the Lord enabled Israel to defeat these kings and to take possession of their land. And after that, the tribes of Reuben and Gad and half of the tribe of Manasseh asked Moses if they could receive this land of Sihon and Og as their inheritance rather than taking a portion of land in Canaan. Now Moses had experienced this before. Israelites not wanting to go into Canaan. Do you remember what happened? And so he initially thought, here we go again. They're rebelling again. They they don't want to take possession of the land that God had promised them. And so he rebuked them. But these two and a half tribes responded to Moses, to his relief, by saying, no, no, that's not what we're talking about. In fact, if the Lord would give us the land of Sihon and Og here on the east side of the Jordan, then we will send all of our fighting men in to participate in the conquest of Canaan so that our brothers can have the land before we come back and settle here. Now Moses then inquired of the Lord, the Lord approved, and so the deal was set. And you can read all about that in Numbers chapter 32. You're going to have to go back to those white pages and open them up maybe for the first time. They're probably stuck together. But at the beginning of the book of Joshua, in our, in our study of Joshua, way back in chapter 2, we saw that Joshua had reminded those two and a half tribes, Reuben, Gad, the half tribe of Manasseh, about their agreement with Moses. And, that, and they then, in response, promised to follow through on it. So what you see in the book of Joshua is that the two and a half tribes sent their fighting men across the Jordan with the Israelites, and they fought alongside their brothers in the conquest of Canaan, which was recorded in chapters 6 through 12. Now, what we're seeing in our chapter is that the storyline is picked up again here in Joshua 22. The conquest now is largely over. Uh, The Lord had given Israel rest from their enemies on every side, and the land lay subdued before them, though each tribe still had some conquering left to do. And so the time had come for Joshua to release these two and a half tribes to go back across the Jordan River to the territory that they had inherited from the Lord there. And the first speech of Joshua recorded here in chapter 22 in the beginning verses, is directed to these two and a half tribes as he's going to send them back to their territory. And we see his speech in verses 1 through 6. I'm just going to summarize it here. In verse 1, he summoned the two and a half tribes to him. Verses 2 through 5, he, it tells us what he said to them. 
And first, he commended them for fulfilling their responsibility to help their brothers conquer Canaan. And then in verse 4, he told them that now that the conquest is over, the time has come for you to return to your own territory. Then finally, verse 5, he gave them a very solemn commission, a commission to be faithful to the Lord once they got to their land across the Jordan. He seems to know that there would be a particular danger for these tribes to go astray from God's law once they had left the land of Canaan and were living now so far away from the tabernacle and the temple and the center of Israel's worship across the Jordan River. It's worth looking, by the way, more closely at what he said to them, how Joshua described what it would look like for these tribes to be faithful to the Lord. He said in verse 5, Only be careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. What is that law? To love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So to summarize, first, Israel, these two and a half tribes, were to love the Lord with all their hearts, with all their soul, with everything in them. And this is really nothing other than that famous verse in, that God had given through Moses in Deuteronomy 6.5, where he said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. This is the first and greatest commandment. You keep this one, you're going to keep all the other ones. But then he says that they're to express this heartfelt, whole-souled love to the Lord by keeping his commands, by doing what he has said, by following his ways. And this, again, is something that Moses had repeated many times in Deuteronomy. For instance, Deuteronomy 11.1, he had said, You shall therefore love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his rules, and his commandments always. And by the way, part of the reason I want to settle here and focus on this is because this is what God requires of us as his new covenant people as well, at least in basic form. This is what it looks like for the church to be faithful to the Lord. It begins with loving our Lord Jesus Christ with all our hearts. Do you remember that Jesus famously and repeatedly told his disciples that if they did not love him more than all else in life. They could not be his disciple. And then we are to express our supreme love for Jesus, our Lord, by obeying his commands. This is what Jesus so famously said in John 14, 15, to his disciples, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Obedience is an expression of love for Christ. John, 1 John 5, 3, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. It's also worth noting that there are two kinds of counterfeits to this that are explicitly talked about in the New Testament. Uh, the first counterfeit is trying to obey Jesus' commands in your outward behavior, but without love for him in your hearts. And the most common motivation for this kind of outward obedience that replaces a motivation of love for God is a desire for the approval of men. Jesus warned against this famously in his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, verse 1. He said, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people 
in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Those who do this, Jesus famously called whitewashed tombs. They appear clean on the outside. They go through the outward external behavior, but are unclean on the inside. But the second counterfeit to this type of true heart religion that God calls his covenant people to, whether under the old or the new covenants, is to claim to love God in your heart, but refuse to obey his commands. This is a very common one as well. Many people will claim to know and love Jesus, but when they get to the scriptures and they see what's in there, they reject various aspects of his teaching and of his commands. Sometimes it's doctrinal issues. They say, oh, I love Jesus, but I don't believe he's the only way to heaven. Or they say, I love Jesus, but I don't like this command to forgive or that command to abstain from sexual immorality. The word refuse is important, right? Because we all stumble in many ways. I mean, we all disobey Christ's commands every day because we're weak and we're sinful still. That's why he taught us also to pray every day. Forgive us of our transgressions. But some people will claim to love Jesus and refuse to obey his commands and see no need of repentance. Paul describes them in Titus 1.6 saying, They profess to know God, but deny him by their works. Now these two counterfeits to faithful service of Jesus are a cause for self-examination. And let me just say to you, if you look into your heart and you see that your religion is counterfeit, then you might not be a Christian. I'm not the judge of your heart, but you can at least examine yourself, as Paul says, to see if you're in the faith. Do you say you love Jesus, but you're not really willing to obey him? Or do you try to obey him, but you don't love him in your heart? You know, what you need is not just a change of behavior. You know, the answer here is not saying, well, I'm going to become more moral. I'm going to become more religious. No, you need something far more radical. That is, to the root, you need a change of your heart, which is something that neither you nor anyone else can do for you. But there is good news for you. This is the good news of the gospel. Yes, we are all corrupt and guilty sinners. Yes, we have merited punishment from our holy creator, God, and that punishment that we deserve from him is death, not just physical death, but eternal destruction in hell. But God, who is our judge, is a merciful God, and he is filled with compassion upon sinners, and out of his great compassion, he has set in motion this incredible plan to redeem fallen sinners. He has sent the eternal person of his divine son, the second person of the triune God, into the world to take on human flesh, to become a man, Jesus Christ. And Jesus, the God-man, did everything that was necessary to save those who would believe in him from the power and from the penalty of their sin. So he fulfilled all of God's commands perfectly on behalf of those who trust in him in his human life. And then he took the full punishment for their sins in their place when he died on the cross So that when God raised him from the dead on the third day, 
All those who repent and believe in him can be forgiven of their sins and reconciled to God forever. And not only that, but the risen Jesus, the scripture says, will pour out into the hearts of believers his Holy Spirit so that they are given new spiritual life and filled with love for him and strength to obey his commands. You see, that is the change you need, sinner. And it's offered to you as a free gift of grace. Simply turn from your sins and run to Jesus Christ in faith, trusting him to save you and to sanctify you by his power and his grace. Peter famously said at the end of his Pentecost sermon in Acts 2.38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, going back to Joshua 22 now, after solemnly commissioning the two and a half tribes in verse 5 to be faithful to the Lord by loving him and keeping his commands, Joshua then gave them some final instructions and then he sent them away, verses 6 through 9. And so we read of their departure. In verse 9 it says, So the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh returned home, parting from the people of Israel at Shiloh which is in the land of Canaan, to go to the land of Gilead, their own land, of which they had possessed themselves by command of the Lord through Moses. Now, it's at this point in the story that things take this strange turn and get very interesting. Because before crossing the river Jordan on their way out of Canaan, we're told in verse 10 that these two and a half tribes stopped and built a giant altar. Now, not surprisingly, this act caught the attention of the Israelites that lived in that region. And word of it quickly spread to the other tribes. And in verse 12, we see how they reacted. It says there, And when the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. In other words, when they heard about this altar that the two and a half tribes had built just west of the Jordan River before they crossed over into their own territory, their fellow Israelites who were living in Canaan prepared to march out and destroy them with their armies. Now at that point in the story, you might be saying, what in the world is going on? And it comes in the next section. Verses 13 through 14 were told that before they just went and attacked the two and a half tribes, the Israelites in Canaan sent a delegation of people to confront them about their action in building this giant altar by the Jordan River. And interestingly, this delegation included one chief from each of the ten tribes living in Canaan and Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest. Which, if you were with us in our adult discipleship class, this will be especially interesting to you because we talked about it there too. Now, the fact that Phinehas was appointed to this delegation. It's striking because there's only one other time in the Old Testament when Phineas features prominently in the story of the Old Testament. And this is Numbers 25. And there the Israelites had betrayed the Lord by joining the Moabites in worshiping the god Baal of Peor. And this idolatrous worship that they had been involved with Uh, involved Israelite men committing immorality with Moabite women. 
And the Lord responded in fierce anger by striking the Israelites with a plague. And they ordered, he ordered Moses to hang all the chiefs of the people because apparently they were involved with this. While an assembly of Israelites had gone to the tabernacle and they were weeping over these things at the tent of meeting before the presence of the Lord, a particular Israelite walked by the weeping congregation leading an Israelite, a Moabite woman into his tent. I mean, this was an, an act of high-handed, in-your-face rebellion. And Phineas the priest was so provoked with holy jealousy for the honor of God and for the faithfulness of his people that he followed them into the tent and thrust a spear through both of them. And in response to his action, the Lord didn't say, Whoa, Phineas. That was a little over the top. No, he said, Phineas, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. So Phineas, renowned for his zeal, for Israel's faithfulness to God, whose action had dealt with rebels in times past and saved Israel from disaster, he is appointed to this delegation. And I think all of that background explains something of why. By the way, it's very interesting that this holy zeal of Phineas the priest for the honor of God and for the faithfulness of his people serves to prefigure for us and to point us forward to a greater priest to come. Our great high priest, Jesus Christ, whose consuming zeal for the honor of God and for the faithfulness of his people, you remember, led him to drive out the money changers from the temple who were turning God's house into a den of robbers. And we would do well to remember that even now, As he has risen from the dead and is seated at God's right hand, his heart burns with holy jealousy for his bride, the church. And he is zealous for her faithfulness to him as he watches over her from his throne. You remember the apostle James said in James 4, 5, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. You see, brothers and sisters, we have to remember, it is no small thing to the Lord Jesus Christ when he sees his bride, the church, betraying him and making friends with the world. It was just such a betrayal, of course, of the Lord, which Israel suspected these two and a half tribes had committed. And this is what they sent this delegation led by Phineas to confront them about. They, they look at this giant altar and that the two and a half tribes had built and they see an act of treachery against God because it appeared to be a blatant violation of God's law. After all, God had said, or they said in verse 16, what is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? Well, he asked, what's the big deal about building another altar? Well, you see, the Lord had made very clear in his law that Israel was not to offer sacrifices and offerings anywhere else 
This is no longer the days of Noah and Abraham. Now there is a tabernacle and a priesthood and a sacrificial system. And to build an altar and offer sacrifices in some other place than that was expressly prohibited in God's law with grave penalties. Leviticus 17 verses 8 and 9 says, And you shall say to them, Any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it to the Lord, that man shall be cut off from his people. It's worth noting here that these old covenant laws about only worshiping God at the tabernacle through the priest by way of the sacrifices, it lays out an important principle in Scripture that God does not, let me repeat, God does not allow human beings to come to him to try to worship him in whatever way they choose. God has always required that people come to him through the way that he has provided. And the fact that God required Israel to approach him through the mediation of the old covenant priests and sacrifices at the tabernacle, well, that served all to point forward to the fact that now he requires all human beings to approach him through the mediation of the great high priest, Jesus Christ, on the basis of his once-for-all sacrifices for sins, where he is seated now in the true tabernacle in heaven. Jesus himself, you remember, is the one who said, John fourteen six, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In fact, to sort of presumptuously try to approach God in any other way, whether a way conceived by other religions or a way that you've made up on your own, is actually an act of rebellion against God for which men need to repent. So, when the two and a half tribes built another altar, a huge one, for everyone to see, you see, Israel presumed this is an act of high-handed rebellion against the Lord. It's comparable to what Achan did back in Joshua chapter 7 and what Israel did at, in Numbers 25 with Baal at Peor. And just as those treacherous acts brought God's judgment not just upon the perpetrators, but upon the nation as a whole. Well, what you see in Joshua 22 is that the nine and a half tribes are afraid that the act of the two and a half tribes is going to bring judgment not just upon them, but upon the whole congregation. You see them explain this in verse 20. They said, Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, break faith in the matter of the devoted things, and wrath fell upon the whole congregation of Israel? This is why they were ready to make war against them. Because if they didn't discipline the two and a half tribes for their apparent treachery against the Lord, as they had done with Achan, then they would become culpable before God, and his wrath might fall upon them as well. By the way, this reflects a principle which is true in one sense with the church as well. You know, all those passages in the New Testament which address what we call church discipline indicate that the church is required to hold its members accountable to obey God. None of us are going to do that perfectly. 
But when someone goes astray into sin and they start living in sin and they refuse to repent, the church is to come in and to confront them and to call them to repentance. And if they do not repent, if they persist in willful sin without repentance, eventually the New Testament teaches they are to be removed from the congregation, excommunicated. One thinks, for instance, of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul commanded the church regarding a member who was sleeping with his father's wife. And he said, let him who has done this be removed from among you. And Paul went on to warn the church in Corinth in verses 6 through 8 that if they failed to do that, there will be consequences for the whole church. A little leaven will spread throughout the whole. Because you see, the church, like Israel, can't just turn a blind eye to those in their midst who begin rebelling against God. Rather, a zeal for God's honor and for a jealousy for the faithfulness of the church to their Lord, among other things, of course, concern for the person living in sin, ought to motivate the church to confront and to lovingly discipline those members who persist in going astray in disobedience. Now, at this point, what we see is that the story takes this unexpected turn, right? Because, you see, the the very deep concern on the part of the Israelites was entirely founded on the presumption that the two and a half tribes had built this giant altar to use. Perhaps they thought they're so far away, they don't want to travel to the tabernacle, so they built their own altar to use. But in verses 21 through 29, you see that the two and a half tribes are extremely desirous to make clear that that was not their intention at all. So verses 22 through 23, the mighty one, God, the Lord. You can imagine perhaps they were on their faces before their brothers. The mighty one, God, the Lord, he knows and let Israel itself know. If it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from the following the Lord. Or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. You see, they're saying, look, that is not our intention. Instead, they went on to explain, verses 24 through 29, that what was going on is they were concerned as they're crossing over the Jordan, leaving the land of Canaan to go to their own territory, that in the future, future generations of Israelites in Canaan might forget that they who lived outside of Canaan were part of the covenant community, and that future generations might Deny them access to the tabernacle. Giant replica. The text says it was a copy of the altar of the Lord in the tabernacle. Right there at the border between the two lands. As a witness to the Israelites in Canaan. And to those that lived across the Jordan. That these two and a half tribes still belonged to the covenant community. And still had a right to worship at the altar of God in the tabernacle. And so what's interesting is that the motivation of the two and a half tribes in building the altar turns out to be almost exactly the opposite of what the nine and a half tribes had suspected. Rather than an act of treachery against the Lord, it's actually an expression of their devotion to him and their their desire to remain faithful to him. Now the chapter ends in verses 30 through 34 by telling us that the nine and a half tribes were relieved to hear the two and a half tribes say this. And, and they, it says it was good in their eyes. They gladly called off their plans to make war against them. And so what we have 
in this chapter is one of the greatest potential disasters in Israel's history. A massive civil war in which nine and a half tribes would seek to wipe out two and a half tribes because of their unfaithfulness. It's all been averted. And instead, both the nine and a half tribes and the two and a half tribes have actually come out uh, demonstrating a vibrant zeal to see the nation remain faithful to the Lord in the land that he had given them. Now that's what's in Joshua 22. And, And let me just consider what I think is the main lesson that it has to teach us. So the main concern of this chapter is actually quite obvious. It's the nation of Israel being faithful to their covenant with God in the land of Canaan by loving him and keeping his commands. Joshua commanded them to do this, the two and a half tribes. The nine and a half tribes showed their eagerness for the nation to do this by confronting the two and a half tribes when they thought they weren't doing it. And in the end, it turned out the two and a half tribes were eager to do it too. So you see, the whole chapter ends up centering around this theme. Dale Ralph Davis puts it this way. He says, the keynote of this chapter is pervasive passion for for fidelity to Yahweh. Now, of course, this is a passion which should mark the church of Jesus Christ as well. We are the new covenant community of his people. So think about it. God the Father has permanently, once for all time, redeemed us out of our former slavery to sin and death through the perfect sacrifice of his beloved son, Jesus Christ. He has united us with himself through a new covenant relationship, which was established by Jesus, in which we have been given better blessings than the old covenant, full pardon from all of our sins forever, the regeneration of our hearts by the Holy Spirit, and a personal relationship in which we all know the Lord We are children of God by the Holy Spirit. We are the bride of his son through faith in him. And now, just as a husband is rightly jealous for the faithfulness of his spouse, so Christ is jealous with a holy jealousy for the faithfulness of us, his church. And every Christian should be zealous for that same thing to be faithful to their Lord. But what does it mean to be faithful to Christ? Well, it's just what Joshua laid out. Verse 5. Be careful to observe the commandment of the law. Of course, we we are not under the law of Moses, but under the commands of Christ. And to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Jesus put it more succinctly, John 15, 16, 14, 16. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So the church is called to be faithful to her great bridegroom, Jesus Christ, by loving him above all, with all their hearts, and showing their love by keeping his commands. Now, of course, we won't be perfect in this. Indeed, we're going to end up breaking his commands every day. And this is why he had to sacrifice himself for us upon the cross, to secure our perfect and permanent forgiveness. Nevertheless, we're not going to be flippant about our disobedience. 
We're going to grieve over it and turn away from it. And we're going to strive to return to those paths of righteousness down which our good shepherd is leading us. And to stay on them more and more faithfully. To turn aside from them less and less every day. And the good news is that under the new covenant, he has made us a new creation. And he's put his spirit in us. Who is there helping us and enabling us and motivating us to do that very thing. I think of the wonderful words in Philippians 2, 12-13 that you know so well. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation, that is, obey the Lord with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And a passion for the faithfulness of the church to Jesus Christ should show up in our lives in a number of levels. So think about it. Members of local churches should be zealous for the faithfulness of their church or their denomination. And in addition to this, we see that pastors in local churches should be zealous for the faithfulness of the congregations that they shepherd. One thinks of Paul's words regarding the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 11, 2-3. He said, I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. For I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his coming, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And in the same way, individual Christians should be zealous for their fellow Christians to be faithful to Christ and show it by encouraging one another to love and obey the Lord. I think of the author of Hebrews saying in Hebrews 10.25, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And then finally, of course, every one of us has a responsibility to keep our own hearts, to tend the garden of our own hearts. When we see sin there, plucking it out by its roots and repenting and and striving to cultivate a love for Christ that is vibrant and growing and seeking to show our love for Christ by walking in obedience to his commands. So this is why we spend time in the word and we spend time in prayer and we come together to fellowship and to sit under the teaching of his word and to be with each other, to encourage each other through this time so that we can grow and remain faithful to Christ. Well, in conclusion, you know, the story that's told in Jane Birchall's book, The Dying of the Light, about the departure of Christian colleges and seminaries from their original convictions over time, you know, that story could really be writ large over many Christian institutions. Joshua 22 reflects God's desire for his covenant people to do the opposite, to remain faithful to him. And it's his purpose. His purpose is to have this at last in the church of his son, Jesus Christ. And we know, brothers and sisters, that in the end, Christ will have a faithful bride through all eternity. But in the meantime, as those who belong to the bride of Christ, with that hope in mind, we are called to share in his passion for the faithfulness of his church and to live it out 
by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for our time in the Word. We thank you for Joshua 22 and the truths that we've culled out of it. We pray that you would so work in our hearts through your Word that we would be sanctified by your truth. Your Word is truth. We pray that you would renew our minds and revive our hearts that you'd fill us with a deeper love for Christ, even this morning stirring up and blowing upon the embers of our love for Christ so that it would burst into flames afresh and that we would be zealous to keep your commands, your wonderful commands. Your yoke is easy, your burden, your burden is light. Your commands are not burdensome. They are life and truth and blessing. And Father, we want to honor you by keeping the commands of your Son. We want to be faithful to Him. Help us to do that, Father. Maybe today, maybe this morning is a time for repentance, for renewing our commitment to walk in obedience in certain areas of our life. Father, we pray that you would strengthen us and do that work of conviction of sin. And Lord, correct us by in your grace and by your power. Strengthen us, we pray. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.